In this week's episode of the Marketing Expedition podcast, we have Clay Space. He was born and raised in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and spent a short stint in LA and then moved to Idaho last May of 2021 in search of an area that was more chaos resistant. He has an extensive experience in the media entertainment industry, and he's been an avid participant in the Bitcoin ecosystem for eight years. And today he's an investor and Bitcoin educator. We have a lot to learn from Clay. Just listen up. But before we get to his interview, I have a couple things I want to share with you today. This week's episode is brought to you by Stash. Become an investor. Get the Stash app that makes money investing easy and affordable. You can add cash to your Stash account and we'll give you a $20 bonus stock if you use my link. Go to peppershock.com offers and click on the Stash app to get your offer today. And now it's time for the Marketing Essentials Moment, the basics that you need to help you build your brand and your bottom line. And today we have the 13 tips for developing an email marketing campaign. And click the link in the show notes for more. There's a blog post all about this with more details for you. When do you want to send these emails out? Who is it that you're targeting? What is your goal? Number two, what's your goal? Number three, get a good writer if you're not one, right? Anybody on the team, are they good at writing, generating good content? If not, of course, Peppershot can help you with that. Number four, what is your key messaging? In other words, what is the main message that you are trying to convey to your viewer? Is it highly competitive? Is is the goal to develop the marketing message that sets you apart from the competition? Or maybe it's a product or service that you have to offer, or maybe it's just providing value to your readers. What is it that you want to accomplish with your messaging? Number five, design matters. It really does. And being able to understand how design works in your email marketing, making it legible on a mobile device, if it's a tiny screen, it all matters how you can have that design be eye-catching and memorable and make it so that people want to open your message. Number six, what are your metrics? What is it that you want to accomplish by sending this email? How can you measure success? Is it the number of opens? Is it the number of people you send it to? Is it the number of click-throughs? Do they do something? Do they actually utilize that call to action that you're putting in your message or or some sort of awareness factor? What is it that you want them to do and how can you measure those results? Number seven, create a subscriber preference center. Now, just before they want to unsubscribe, maybe you can give them some options before they completely unsubscribe, right? Maybe that preference can be that they just want to hear from you maybe once a month or, you know, once a week, whatever that preference is, give them those options before they just completely unsubscribe. Number eight, know your audience. Who is your target customer? Who is it that you want to send this message to? What are they going to do? How are they going to see it? What's some common phrases that are going to capture their attention in the subject line? And of course, number nine is study the art and science of subject lines. If those emails are ready to send, but you're using all caps, for example, that's a red flag. Make sure that the information that you're using in the subject line is something that will not go to spam, that will get seen and sent to their inbox. Number 10, proofread again. 
And again, I always say two sets of eyes on everything before it goes out the door and not your own set because you've been looking at it so much that maybe somebody else will see something that you didn't see that could be construed as different or wrong or maybe there's some grammar or maybe a misspelling or maybe you're using the wrong there. They're there and they are, right? Uh, number 11, avoid spamming. Automatic detections will forward those messages to spam folders. So you need to make sure that you're not doing things that are not legal, first of all, but second of all, making sure that that it's not going to get into that spam folder. Number 12, data analysis. Now that you've sent your messages and the feedback is in, see what's working, what's not, what more content can you do and along the lines of what people actually want to look on and click on, right? And number 13, what can you improve? After all that's been said and done here, what can you take away? What are you excelling at in your data analysis? And understand how it's working, when to send that message, when to um, you know, continue to follow up or not, right? If you have a series or a sequence of emails, make sure that you're diversifying and find out what the interests are of your target audience. Be useful, entertaining, memorable, all of those things. And if you need help, contact us. We can help you with this process that you're going through to make sure that your email lands where it needs to, does what it's supposed to do, and that you can continue to improve upon what you're doing. All right, without further ado, let's get into the interview with Clay Space. Welcome to Pepper Shock Media's Marketing Expedition Podcast, keeping you up to date with the latest in marketing and advertising. Now, here's your host, Ray Allen. Welcome to the Marketing Expedition Podcast. I'm your host, Ray Allen. I'm the president and CEO of Peppershock Media and the founder of the Marketing Expedition Community. And today's guest, we have Clay. Clay, tell us who you are and what you do. Yeah. Um, well, I've, I've done a lot of things. Uh, but right now, uh, mainly, I am working in the community to kind of uh, I guess you could say spread the word of Bitcoin. Uh, so I run uh, some Bitcoin groups in town, um, and then I'm also kind of involved in the venture capital scene. Yeah, and that's fairly new for you, right? Yeah, quite. Um, I uh, spent the last few years in Los Angeles um, kind of working on a, a small media company. Um, and when COVID hit, I was like, get me the hell out of here <laughs> and, uh, and moved out to Idaho. Yeah, you and lots of other people too, right? Yeah, yeah, it's a little, it's a little disappointing. But I, I definitely have become at this point one of those people who sees the California plates and is like, ah, yeah, get them out of here, <laughs> go back home. No, I know that's definitely happening. People are moving and figuring out that they can work from anywhere at any time, and it doesn't necessarily matter where you live anymore, right? Yeah, yeah. No, I think um, one of the things we notice here a lot, and I think it's happening everywhere else too, is you have these. Um, uh, all these restaurants that are just, they can't find any employees. And I'm thinking that maybe part of the issue is that why would you work at a restaurant if you can work in Seattle, but you can live in Boise right. and you'll make more money and you don't have to necessarily leave your house. Yeah, we're definitely experiencing people from work, working from home. You're in the studio today and there's no one here because they <laughs> all working from home or out on a shoot or doing something today. You're right. And more and more, I think people are going to use the Zoom and all the different things that you can use now to be able to work from anywhere. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, OK, let's back up. In LA, you had a small media company. What did you do? Yeah. Um, so back, this kind of started back in 2016 or maybe even earlier. Um, I, right out of college, had been very fortunate to um, 
have a few acting credits and uh, actually get um, published by Scholastic for some of my writing. And so um, kind of right out of college, I was like getting paid to be an artist. And I was thinking, man, you know, this is probably my path. At the same time, I'd also stumbled into the blockchain ecosystem and cryptocurrencies. Yeah. And, um, and I became addicted to those as well. And it became pretty clear that I couldn't do both of them at a high level. Um, because one of them, you know, looking at charts all day is very analytical and then, you know, writing stories is, is a completely different side of your brain. Um, and so I kind of came into this issue where I needed to either choose one or the other um, or find a way to combine them. So I, uh, I ultimately uh, started a project in 2016, 2017 that sought to kind of combine these two things where we created this uh, science fiction world um, and uh, created a token. And within our world, the characters used this currency. Um, and so when we created the currency, we, uh, we gave it to our audience. We allowed them to use that token to interact with our experience. And that's kind of what's happening now with the NFTs, right? We have to yeah. explain a little bit about what's going on there. Huh? Yeah, NFTs, um, and actually it's kind of funny, is is as I was looking to pivot the project um, around 2018, I looked into NFTs at the time, um, and we were looking at it from a perspective of basically looking at it as kind of like digital merchandising. Um, so... You know, Disney, when they create a film, um, a lot of their revenue comes from selling toys or selling T-shirts or what have you. And so we were looking at, um, could you basically take that merchandising and put it, make it digital? Um, and I think that there's absolutely some plays there. I think there's actually, I mean, of course, the part of the story that, that I haven't mentioned yet is kind of the experience of me creating this this media company and, and using this token um, made me really realize just kind of how misaligned a lot of the incentives are within the cryptocurrency industry um, and really turned me off from a large part of the industry, which is basically these these tokens, uh, things like Ethereum um, and a lot of the other ones. But it, it forced me down this rabbit hole of what money is. Um, and so it brought me back to Bitcoin and um, made me really appreciate and understand why Bitcoin was created. Um, but but NFTs are wholly different than um, kind of Bitcoin or some sort of monetary asset. Um, NFTs are really trying to be, I think in the best way to put it, would be digital merchandise. And so there's absolutely, you know, if you think of it like from the perspective of a video game where you could have some sort of uh, sword or piece of clothing that could actually be interoperable between games so you could take that and you can move it between various video games I, I think that there is probably a use case there yeah. um, and there's probably the, w what makes it hard I think from a perspective of investing in it and why I don't personally invest in NFTs is I think that um, ultimately what you'll probably see is you'll see uh, various NFTs that were created either by anonymous developers or just have a large network effect um, because they've been around for a long time. They have a lot of people who own them that ultimately video game developers come in and say, hey, look, there's a community of a million people who own these NFTs. Let's build a video game where they can then port those NFTs into our game. And so they're, they're basically you'll have um, it's kind of like the opposite of what we have today where you have video game makers who create a video game and then um, you go to the video game and you use the assets within their game and then you can't really take them out. 
um, in in potentially in this this uh, different model, you would have um, video game developers basically marketing to a network that already exists, um, and then actually uh, kind of kowtowing to that network. So they would be creating uh, games and assets that play into this already pre-built network. Right. And let's back up. What does NFT stand for? Uh, non-fungible token. Right. And then let's also back up for those that don't know necessarily what Bitcoin really is. I mean, I'm sure people have heard about it, but let's share a little bit about what Bitcoin is, where it started, how it came to existence and why you're so involved with it. <laughs> yeah. Well, and and so that's, yeah, that's a, a really big story actually. <laughs> um, but the, probably the most, I think the most important aspect to understand about Bitcoin and, and probably what got me interested in the space when I first started um, is just the the supply cap for Bitcoin. So Bitcoin only has 21 million tokens. There will never be more than 21 million tokens. And the majority of those tokens have already been created. Um, and, and so that's really, I think, an important thing to understand about Bitcoin because there's not a lot of things in this world that have this, um, this sort of set... Uh, Supply, right. um, and and so if you look at other assets, um, you know anything from Apple stock to the U.S. dollar, uh, there is no guarantee that they will not inflate the supply of those of those assets, and um, and so having something that has a set supply uh, really does, in a way, completely change the game. It's it's not really something um, that humanity has had ever in our in our experience right. um, and so I think that we're probably undervaluing just how important it is to have some sort of a digitally native asset that has a, a fixed rate of supply right and now you can purchase things with Bitcoin and you know that's also creating some tension right because you know with the, the Tesla being able to buy a Tesla with Bitcoin and, and so now there's controversy around it right yeah um, and it's kind of like an age-old discussion about what is Bitcoin's use case, um, and and so what was the creator of Bitcoin really kind of intending for the Bitcoin network and for his invention, um, and and so yeah, there has been this tension between is is Bitcoin a an asset that you go out and you spend, or is it an asset you hold? Um, and these are kind of and to an extent, totally different um, things, and and it gets a lot of it gets into kind of like uh, you know our relationship with money, and um, and so there is a field of thought for money in general that, especially in kind of today's world, uh, around consumption. So around like this idea that uh, the more people spend, uh, the, the more they consume, the better it is for the economy. The more we're able to essentially um, kind of create these uh, revolving doors of, of capital growth. Um, and what that argument kind of fails to appreciate is this idea of holding out on your consumption and waiting for better prices, waiting for better opportunities to essentially um, purchase goods. Um, and, and so kind of a good way, I think, to, to look at it is if you are a farmer and uh, and your consumption is basically, uh, you know, uh, collecting the, you know, the the fruits from your field. Um, if you overconsume, you don't have enough fruit for the next year. You don't have enough to to farm for the next year. 
Um, and so you have to have some form of storage. You have to have some form of, look, I'm not going to consume all my food this year because I know I'm going to need it for the next year. Um, and so today's world, we're very much focused on saying, hey, let's consume as much as we can today and we'll worry about holding it and storing it tomorrow. Um, and so, so what Bitcoin's really ultimately trying to solve is that issue of storage and kind of trying to create this asset where um, you could basically take your Bitcoin, uh, you could put it somewhere um, and you could go to sleep, you could wake up 100 years from now and that Bitcoin would still be accessible to you. Um, and, and so in that case, uh, you're kind of, I'd say, um, kind of breaking that circular uh, sort of uh, consumption uh, circle, so right. to speak. Right. And it's interesting now that more people are accepting or thinking about it as an investment strategy as part of their portfolio, right? Yeah, yeah, um, definitely. Um, and we're seeing institutions beginning to get on, on board. Um, probably one of the more uh, bullish aspects for that is you see insurance companies buying buying Bitcoin or looking at allocations to Bitcoin. Um, and what's so exciting about that is insurance companies are kind of the uh, most conservative uh, companies on the planet. And so if they're the ones who are looking at Bitcoin and saying, yes, we need some sort of allocation to this, um, I think that the, the narrative around Bitcoin is absolutely starting to change and people are seeing it as um, a much more conservative asset than maybe we have in the past. And and as one of those assets that, yes, you could hold that and you could disappear for a couple of years and come back. and. It doesn't matter what has happened in the world. It doesn't matter what institutions have gone out of business or disappeared. As long as you, you know, took the precautions and, and the measures uh, before you left, you still have access to your money. Right. And only spend what you can afford to lose. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about that, though, because Bitcoin has been so volatile and it's up and down and all around. Tell me more. What's going on? <laughs> um, yeah, it's probably not worth speculating too much um, on price um, just because uh, it's kind of this fickle beast and um, it's it's hard to tell what exactly factors into the price going up or going down at any time. Um, there's certainly been a few interesting factors kind of at play right now um, and I don't know how, how um, in-depth your audience has maybe dived into the Bitcoin space or the ecosystem, um, but kind of the, some of the big uh, I think developments recently have been around um, Bitcoin's energy consumption and the ESG debate, um, and then also uh, specifically around China um, and China basically taking a stance that it's going to be banning Bitcoin mining. Um, and so, like so, for instance, for um, for uh, Bitcoin being banned in China, what's um, kind of interesting about this short term is it means that you have a lot of uh, network capacity, a lot of these miners, um, which are basically these computers that uh, take energy and convert it into Bitcoin. Um, they are leaving China and they're trying to find somewhere else to go. And there was a lot of miners in China. Um, China overbuilt a lot of its energy structures over the last uh, 40 years. And so there's a lot of free energy in that country around the dams and these areas. Um, and so and so there was just massive incentive for Bitcoin miners to set up shop in China because they got a lot of really cheap and if not free energy. And um, and so now that China said, nope, we want you out, um, they're having to move. And so that's having this sort of, um, 
uh, strain, you could say, on the Bitcoin network as far as um, you have one, you have miners who a lot of their cap tables are denominated in Bitcoin. A lot of their holdings are in Bitcoin. And so when they have to now move to another country and and move, you know, millions of dollars worth of equipment, uh, they have to sell Bitcoin in order to do that. Um, and, and then there's also just kind of the general sort of FUD around, hey, look, we can see in real time how many how much energy has come offline on the Bitcoin network because of this mandate. Um, on the plus side, though, uh, the Bitcoin network proves very, very resilient. And so the network itself is not really impacted. The uh, It continues to tick along just as fine. Um, and uh, it actually gets rid of one of the larger pieces of FUD uh, around Bitcoin, uh, kind of this you know attacks on Bitcoin, yeah. um, which was that China controlled Bitcoin. Uh, China's now banned, basically banned the mining of Bitcoin, um, and uh, and so they've essentially, um, you could say, they've essentially kind of banned themselves from the Bitcoin network. Right. Um, so over time, we're going to definitely see a lot less uh, sway from sort of China around the Bitcoin network, which I think ultimately there should be no one country that has a majority stake in the Bitcoin uh, industry in any aspect of Bitcoin. Right. So it's. Uh got itself away from it for so now no longer will it have that rumor that it's owning it so that's good yeah yeah okay. then the other the other part of um what we're seeing is we're seeing around kind of the energy sector um so kind of also tied into mining um so so bitcoin has this um the way that that bitcoin operates it operates under uh, what we call proof of work which is basically um you have these miners that uh, take energy out of our universe, out of our reality, and they convert it into this token that exists in a completely different reality that we basically cannot be inside, we can only interact with, right? Which is the digital ecosystem. Um, And so proof of work is really important in the sense that it is the way that we essentially tie the digital ecosystem into our own reality. Um, and, And, other attempts have been made at essentially trying to decouple reality from an ecosystem, from this other ecosystem, um, and they ultimately tend to fail. Um, and so I could get into like you know how we've kind of done that with like our our U.S. dollar or with other currencies. Um, and uh, but but I'll try to I'll stay on topic right now with the energy. Um, and so so there's this large argument going on with basically. How these how these miners do this is, uh, they have to consume significant amounts of energy in order to essentially convert this Bitcoin, and it has two kind of main ways that it helps the Bitcoin network. One is the more energy that's kind of engaged with creating new Bitcoin, uh, the stronger the network is. So the harder it is for somebody to come in with a whole bunch of energy and attack the system, um, and. Uh, because if you think about it, um, if you want to interact with Bitcoin at that layer, you have to spend significant capital to find an energy source, uh, basically put up computers next to that energy source, uh, extract that energy source, and then turn that energy source into Bitcoin. There's a lot of ways in which you can fail and you can lose a lot of money. Um, and so the more energy that the network has, the more it's spread out, the harder it is for one person to come in that find a, an energy source where they could really extract a significant amount of the energy from the system and then kind of attack Bitcoin through that vector. Um, and so the energy is very important for Bitcoin's overall security. Um, and uh, um, 
what we're seeing right now um, kind of around this sort of green narrative is uh, politicians and institutions that are saying that uh, Bitcoin's energy consumption is is unhealthy for the environment. And, uh, and so a lot of the a lot of the cases they make are, I think, um, not very honest. Uh, they they come from, I think, either a place where they maybe do not fully understand how Bitcoin operates uh, or they're, I think, deliberately um, trying to attack the network. Um, and so ultimately, what we're seeing with the Bitcoin network uh, and and when you have if you're thinking, you know, from the perspective of a miner where your uh, your ability to make money comes from uh, you know collecting Bitcoin at the lowest possible price um, you want to go to areas where the ability to extract energy is as cheap as possible and so in a lot of cases um, especially what we're beginning to see like in the United States what we saw in China as well is that a lot of these um, a lot of this extraction comes into uh, places where the energy itself is stranded. Um, it's already renewable. So, for instance, China, one of the major reasons that China had so much energy was because they had so many dams. They had so many rivers. And these all created energy, but then they had no city next to it. And so these miners would come in and they'd take that energy and they'd bob it into Bitcoin. In the United States, what we're seeing is... Um, we're seeing uh, movements around flare gas. So you have these oil companies that go in and they're out in the middle of nowhere. And uh, basically they, they strike black gold and the gold starts coming up out of the ground, right? This oil comes out of the ground. And um, with that, there is natural gas that comes out of the ground as well. And um, right now, uh, the government kind of mandates that with that gas, uh, because there's nowhere to put it, and natural gas is very, very difficult to kind of move around. Um, in fact, energy itself is very, very difficult to move around. Uh, there's, we don't really have um, good ways of storing energy. Um, so you can, you can kind of see that like in our phones, right, where our phones increase at an, in, in a ridiculous rate as far as like how, how much capacity they're able to kind of um, uh, show as far as just information and, and speed. Uh, but the batteries themselves, uh, we don't really see a lot of increase in their capacity. So energy is very difficult to store. And, uh, and so with this natural gas, um, basically there's no way for them to store it, but the government mandates that they need to do something with it. So they're required basically to flare it. They're basically, they just put a match over it and they catch it all on fire. And so it's, it's just a major waste of right. this energy. And so the cool thing is that now we can have um, Bitcoin miners come in. We're able to capture that natural gas and convert it into Bitcoin. So what happens with these oil companies, and one of the reasons that um, Exxon is interested in yeah. Bitcoin, is that they're able to basically turn what was originally um, an expense on their balance sheet into an asset. And... Um, and so what this does is it does a few things, and, and this is what I think the regulators don't quite understand, is one, um, because people are seeking low, the lowest cost of energy, they're absolutely first going to be pushed towards renewables. They're going to be pushed towards um, areas where you have stranded energy that we're not going to be able to get anyways. Um, but then it also allows for our grid, our energy grid, uh, to be more um, robust where basically um, 
And so you could look like it at an area like Texas um, or, or California where we have these freak weather patterns that suddenly happen and all of a sudden everybody, like in Texas, everyone needed their heating, right? Because right? there's a freak snowstorm came in and everybody needed their heating. Well, the energy companies were not ready for this once in a lifetime event. And so they basically had to cut off energy. There was just not enough energy to go around. Um, and and so the reason that this happens is we, similar to, I think, um, what we've noticed uh, because of COVID with our kind of our supply chains, right. uh, where we kind of have this last minute supply chain that we, that we live with, um, we do the very same thing with energy. If you're an energy company, basically what you're doing is you're looking and you're saying, how much energy does my city, does this area that I have to service produce within a given day? Um, what is that average? And I want to hit that average as often as possible. Because if I overproduce energy, I waste money. If I right. underproduce energy, I waste money. And so these companies have to make this very, very fine balancing act where they basically are unable to overproduce energy for these freak incidences. But of course, during these freak incidences is when we need energy the most. Right. And so, um, with Bitcoin, it can now come in, and as an energy producer, you can say, I'm just going to produce as much energy as I want, and I'm going to take the excess energy that I produce every day, and I'm going to feed that into my Bitcoin mining operation, and I will make money for that. And, and really, the reason why it takes so much energy is because of the computing power in order to make the Bitcoin happen, right? Yeah, and, and the way that you can kind of look at that um, is, is um, so the Bitcoin miners, what they're doing is they're basically... Um, solving this complex puzzle. And and um, the more miners that are involved in that, uh, in that puzzle, the harder that gets. And so you can kind of think of it as, and, and this is dictated by, um, by uh, Bitcoin's kind of constitution. Um, uh, and, and so kind of the way you can think about it is if you and me are the only people in the world mining Bitcoin, the way that we would probably we would do it, and, you know, if we were computers, right. uh, but in our in our reality is we would both have a, a die, and we would just start rolling that die, and once somebody hit a six, we would get rewarded in Bitcoin, um, and so it's just kind of this randomized operation where it's you know I just we roll dice until somebody hits a six, and then boom, Bitcoin. Um, if all of a sudden ten more people joined us, we'd have to adjust the difficulty, we'd have to adjust the rules. So now it's we have, we both are roll we're all rolling two dice and we have to get sixes, two sixes, three times in a row. And you can just continue to adjust this more and more um, and make it as hard as possible as you get more and more people. And then let's say a few people leave, we can readjust it down so that we basically hit this sort of um, this, I guess you could say like a, a, a an average, a beautiful average. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, and so how many miners do you think are working at any given time? Quite a few. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a very large network. Um, and at this point, um, especially considering what we've seen with China and just the number that have left the network and that the Bitcoin network just continues to operate fine and, and normally, um, it's, it's very significant. Yeah. yeah. And the people with the computing power have the ability to, to create this Bitcoin, and then they can put it on the market, essentially, mm -hmm. and then eventually transfer it into dollars, US dollars, whatever dollars that you decide that you want to convert it into, 
Or you can also spend your U.S. dollars and buy Bitcoin. Yeah, you yeah, don't and have to be a miner. <laughs> right, yeah, and that's the way that I think a lot of people get involved with Bitcoin is is they're not doing it from the mining side. The the, the mining is I think kind of this mystical aspect that everybody wants to know know more about. Yeah. Um. And um. But for most of us, we get involved just by purchasing Bitcoin. Right. Yeah, and there's lots of different apps that you can purchase it. And yeah, you showed me one Strike, I think it was. Uh, or... yeah, okay, so Strike is is kind of different. Um, but you have yeah, like apps today. Um, for like Bitcoin specifically, you have uh, companies like Swan Bitcoin, um, companies like Coinbase, uh, and others that have been around now for Cash App. I think Cash App allows I it first. to. <laughs> you can even purchase with PayPal, though I don't recommend that. Right. Um, sure. There's a fee involved. Lots of fees. <laughs> yeah, lots of fees. Um, Strike is actually, now that I think about it, Strike has just started. Um, I don't know if it's going to be this week or next week, but they will be um, allowing Bitcoin purchases on their app. And the really neat thing is they've actually found a way to get you Bitcoin fee-less. So you can now purchase Bitcoin for essentially no fee at all. Wow. And uh, that's probably a, a, a large game changer in, in the game as far as... Um, where we may be purchasing our Bitcoin in the future. No, I've definitely transferred some Bitcoin to my housekeeper. We (laughs) we set up a thing for her and she, you know, not always, but, and and of course when it goes down, she lets me know, (laughs) (laughs) but I think it's fun to, to, to involve and, and include others and see how you can utilize Bitcoin to your advantage and watch it grow, watch it go down. And, and like you said to me before, you just have to get used to the volatility because it is up and down and all around. Right. Yeah. And, and as much as it hurts to watch your investment kind of have in value, um, it, it also feels really good to watch it quadruple in value. Right. And, and so that volatility is kind of par for the course with Bitcoin. And um, you have to learn to weather those 50% drawdowns in order to really benefit from the larger bull markets that we do see. Yeah. And you've heard, I just remember stories of people saying, oh, I lost my hard drive. I don't know what my Bitcoin password is. And I don't, I don't have it. And people looking for it. And if only they could find it. And if they had sat on it for all this time, where would they be now, right? If they had one Bitcoin back in, Whenever, when did it start? When did we get started? Uh, 2009. Yeah. So if they had had that one Bitcoin now, I mean. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and that's kind of like growing pains of the, of the ecosystem. A lot of these people um, basically purchased uh, what you could consider as pocket change at the time. Um, and so it wasn't a significant investment and they weren't really looking at it as a significant investment. And so they didn't protect it like it was a significant investment. Yeah. Today, if you own 10 Bitcoin, one Bitcoin, even at this point, you know, 0.1 Bitcoin, um, you do treat it with a lot more respect. Um, and you think, I need to make sure that I am holding this in an appropriate manner. And, and I actually kind of would relate it to um, uh, like, you know, uh, collecting collectible cards um, or, or games like Magic the Gathering, where you have this community that when it first started, um, a lot of the cards that were printed, um, even within the printing themselves, they were like, you know, you can, if you lose this game, you have to give this other player your card um, or you have to rip it up um, or whatever. And uh, and so people were playing this game when it first came out, um, you know, and playing on, on floors and, you know, and, 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 yeah, at expos <laughs> and things like that. And today that that player base, um, every card they get, they double sleeve it. They put it in a whole bunch of sleeves and they protect them and they keep them in binders because there's this understanding that inherently the value of this asset could go up over time and I shouldn't be putting this on a dirty floor or bending it or, you know, putting it in my pocket. Yeah. 
used to think baseball cards would, would be worth some money that <laughs> <laughs> my husband kept a lot of them, but anyway, <laughs> but yeah. And so now other things have taken off. Like, uh, you mentioned your, your Ethereum, say it again, Ethereum, <laughs> Ethereum. Thank you. <laughs> um, and other like the Dogecoin and all these other ones have kind of started to, to come up. Um, and you said that you don't necessarily want to, to invest in those and, and they're not as, I guess, the same as what Bitcoin is. I mean, tell me a little bit more about all these other ones that are popping up and, you know, what interest or value should people take in that or not? Yeah, um, I think largely um, is it comes down to, for me, it came down to really understanding why Bitcoin was created, what problem it was trying to solve, and um, and then ultimately kind of what is money? Um, because a lot of these other projects um, are basically trying to solve a, a similar issue, but they're not solving it from, I, I think, um, what is maybe the purest of, of, of uh, sources. So, um, and, and this kind of goes into like, I guess, like the, the philosophy of money. But if, if we were trapped on an island, it was just you and me, yeah. uh, you know, we, we hop on a boat and the boat crashes and we're stuck on this island. Uh, money doesn't matter anymore, right? It doesn't matter how much, it doesn't matter if we brought a suitcase of cash to this island, um, we no longer need it. And uh, and so it, it's at, at small scale, money is a completely useless metric. If there's just a couple of us on an island, ultimately what we're doing is we're exchanging favors. We're exchanging favors to increase our bartering. reputation. We're bartering. Not even, yeah. I mean, yeah, kind of, but I would say it's even more, um, even deeper than that to an extent, or even more basic. It's, it's basically, um, I'm going to go collect the water and you're going to start the fire. And when I get back, uh, you know, we're going to make food. And, and if I get back and you didn't start the fire, I'm going to start thinking about eating you, you know, I'm going to start <laughs> thinking about like, how do I get rid of you? Cause you're now becoming a liability. Um, you know, it's similar to like, if, you know, when you're hanging out with your friends, um, if you have that friend who, uh, always crashes on your couch and asks you for money and then never really, you know, pays you back in any way, um, whether with uh, with attention or affection or, or just being a good person, you ultimately say, I don't need this person in my life, and you get rid of them. Um, and in that case, it's not a monetary transaction, it's a reputational transaction. It's this person, um, I give this person things and they don't reciprocate, and their reputation to me has, has been lost. Um, and so on this island, um, we kind of create this this favor-based reputation system. And as more and more people, let's say this is just a magnet for, for boat crashes, as more and more people <laughs> crash onto this island and our island gets larger and larger than the people that are on here, uh, we no longer can really keep in uh, keep in our minds uh, what we owe to one another or, or kind of whose reputation is important within a society. If there's a thousand people on this island, um, I no longer know if I go and fetch water, if Lisa, you know, who just came on this island yesterday and who I don't know at all is actually going to start that fire. Um, and so we now need to essentially take, um, we, we need some sort of asset to essentially, uh, take the place of this reputation system. We need some sort of token to begin trading back and forth. And so that's where you begin to get the basis of money is we basically find this thing that can represent the favor that we've already done for somebody else. It, it becomes this representation of, I have done work in the past and somebody gave me this asset and now I'm going to use it today to get work from you. Um, and, uh, and in order for that asset to really work, it needs a few things that are very, very important. 
one is it needs to be divisible. So you need to be able to take it and break it down and put it back together. And, and um, you know, it can't be an NFT. It needs to be fungible. It can't be right. non-fungible. Yeah. Well, that's what NFT stands for, by the way, for those who have never heard of it. Yeah. Right. Non-fungible token. Non-fungible token. Um, and, and so you need something that's actually fungible and that you can break it down and then you can put it back together. Um, you need something that's saleable across time. So it has to be, um, it can't be something that uh, slowly deteriorates over the course of a week or a month or a year. It needs to really be hard and set in stone and, and, uh, and not degrade. Um, and then you, it also needs to be scarce. So like something, if we're on this island, we're looking around and we're saying, all right, we got a thousand people here. What is our token going to be? What is our currency going to be? Uh, we're not going to use sand. You know, the, the guy who starts the lemonade stand on the island isn't going to say, yeah, sure, give me a bag of sand for my lemonade because he's like, there's plenty of sand here. I don't need this, even though it's roughly pretty fungible and, and you can divide it pretty well. Um, and I think you could also say that it, it stands the test of time. Um, uh, you know, we're also, though, we're not going to be using leaves. We're not going to be using um, probably quite a few of the things on this island. Um, but let's say that uh, uh, basically on this island, we're trying to find the asset that's going to be the most saleable across time, the most scarce, the hardest to reproduce. Um, and that's a big one is something that, uh, you know, once we figure this thing out, uh, we can't have somebody sitting in a corner and beginning to forge this new currency of ours um, because then it completely breaks down our reputation system. And once you break down our reputation system, we no longer can trust one another. We can no longer create goods and services for this for the society. And this island goes from being a paradise to being hell pretty quickly. Well, and then the only thing is, is that you have to have internet, right? To access the, <laughs> the, the blockchain. But the reason why blockchain is so infallible though, because it's, if it, you know, if you don't have internet in one area, it still exists somewhere else. Right. And yeah. that's kind of the idea behind that. Right. Yeah. And what I've found is I think that it actually provides, um, some pretty good, um, arbitrage opportunities for people that are living in areas that maybe do not have a strong economy. Um, so for instance, I grew up in Albuquerque, New Mexico and, um, Albuquerque is not really known for their business community. <laughs> it's one of New Mexico's one of the poorest states in the, in the nation. Um, and what I've noticed just personally is I had a lot of friends that had a very difficult time getting out of Albuquerque. So they had these plans or these desires to want to go to Los Angeles or, or wanting to go to a larger city. Um, but the cost of living was so large that they couldn't really make that jump. And so they were kind of stuck. Um, and of course, we see this on much kind of uh, larger scales, say, in third world countries where they don't really even have the opportunity to leave that country because they just simply do not have the monetary resources to do that. Um, and, and there's no way for them to participate in their local economy to kind of get there. Um, and so Bitcoin, by being this sort of digitally native asset that you can access from anywhere in the world, it gives you this arbitrage opportunity where you can basically opt out of your local economy and um, opt into a much larger economy uh, that, that can see uh, growth. As long as you have your account number and your password, then you're good <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah. to know what you bought and where you purchased it and how much you got and what it, the yeah. value of it is. Yeah. Well, and, and the cool thing about Bitcoin, too, is is um, it's not necessarily an account number. I mean, you can purchase Bitcoin. And most of us do purchase Bitcoin on an exchange like Swan or Coinbase or, or Strike soon. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, you can store it outside of any of these exchanges because it is an asset that exists outside of these exchanges. The, the, the exchanges popped up to serve the asset, not the other way around. Um, and so 
you can keep your Bitcoin on a flash drive, you can keep it on a piece of paper, um, and it kind of acts as this uh, deeper form of security, I think, than um, the sort of the legacy institutions that we have today, where um, in a lot of cases, in, in order for somebody to attack your Bitcoin personally, they'll have to understand how your setup operates. And there's some ways to really get into the weeds and, and create a setup that's very easy for you to access, but very difficult for somebody else to. Um, and and that's kind of different than the central institutions that centralized into institutions we have today where, um, you know, you, you get these hacks all the time where they just leak so much data. Um, and, and so it's only a matter of time before a lot of these institutions um, because they are just this one centralized vector for attack, um, probably uh, end up breaking under these sort of small assaults. You can almost you can almost think of it as uh, kind of the the fall of the Roman Empire, where they got so large that they were unable to kind of protect their flank from barbarians, and the barbarians just slowly started to eat away at the at the sides of their of their civilization. Um, and I think a lot of these large institutions are kind of beginning to feel that too, where a hacker from some podunk yeah. town in the middle of nowhere in, in some other country can can get access to these databases if they just press the right set of keys. Right. Yeah. And that is happening more and more with cybersecurity and, you know, the things that are, I don't know, I think I just got a notification for something that my username and password is compromised and I need to reset my password. I mean, that happens all the time now. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, um, I, I've been on a few lists that have been compromised and um, my, uh, my email gets DDoSed all the time now where I'll have somebody, I, I don't know how they do it, but they sign me up for 100,000 subscriptions and all of a sudden I can't use my email for two days because every minute I'm receiving 10 or 15 emails. Yeah, I, <laughs> I can relate to that too. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so many emails, that's for sure. Um, okay, so let's talk about how this is related to marketing since we are on a marketing journey. How do you see in the future Bitcoin being used more in, like you said, the institutions, but being able to purchase things or, you know, like you said, the goods and services that you can exchange for utilizing Bitcoin? When we look at how to market the goods and services that everyone consumes, and, you know, in a marketing perspective, we want people to consume, but how do you think that the transition of people being able to utilize Bitcoin more is going to affect how people do business together? Yeah, I, I think um, you should look at Bitcoin as a network. And so everybody who holds Bitcoin is a part of this network. And um, we're seeing more and more often now that people build businesses and products to uh, essentially interact with this network and to essentially monetize that network. Um, and so I think the deeper that you understand Bitcoin and the community around Bitcoin, the easier it is for you to essentially create products and services that can cater to their needs and, and interests. Um, and it's a very interesting community in the sense that you're dealing with a community that owns an asset that over time its value goes up. And so they are hesitant to spend their money. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, right, that's a, both a good and a bad thing um, in the sense that good is is you have a very high moral conviction in the Bitcoin community. I think actually, um, I was recently in at Bitcoin Miami, um, which is a, a, the largest Bitcoin conference that maybe has ever happened. Oh, wow. um, there was about 10,000 people there. And um, the what I, what I found so astonishing is that 
the majority of people there uh, had extraordinarily high moral values. Everybody I met at the conference was um, very purposed and, and interesting and engaging. And, you know, I think we, I've at least been to a lot of conferences where you just meet people and you just want, you're like, I don't want to talk to this person anymore. <laughs> Get me out of here. Um, that was not the experience that I had at, at this conference. Um, and a lot of people take very good care of their bodies. It was amazing how many of them were, uh, were, like just ripped, <laughs> <laughs> right? Um, cool. And and uh, and so I, I thought that that was really interesting because you're looking at this sort of financial asset that's causing them to completely change the way that they live their lives and interact with the world. Um, and so and so the products and services that Bitcoiners are interested in are are very very different than the products and services that maybe the average individual would be interested in. And as I think the Bitcoin network grows, I think we're going to see. A change in the culture as well, and you're going to see a shift towards some of these other interests that maybe the Bitcoin community um, kind of is an advocate for, which is these ideas of sustainability, these ideas of kind of uh, um, uh, self-discipline, um, and and so yeah. So when it comes to to marketing to this kind of community, it's it's not about marketing um, fads or marketing uh, some sort of um, get rich quick thing it's it's very much about trying to trying to give them a value that could outpace the value that they've received by holding bitcoin for the next 10 years and that's a difficult task but if you can figure it out then you'll create a you know a trillion dollar company for sure (laughs) (laughs) well let's see so what you're saying is that i should accept bitcoin as a a currency in our business then (laughs) (laughs) well and and this was always kind of a, a different sort of thing, right? And it kind of goes back to, I don't know if we fully wrapped up this, um, this avenue, but it kind of goes back to like, what is the purpose of Bitcoin? Is it, a, is it an asset that people want to sell or is it an asset that they want to hold? And, and the, the, largely the Bitcoin community said, this is an asset that we want to hold. Mm-hmm. Um, it was something that I figured out with the business that I ran is, you know, we'd created this currency, we created this asset that people expected would go up in value. And so they didn't actually want to use it to interact with our project. And that really tanked the project. It was like, well, <laughs> we created this project so that you would interact with it. And you're not doing that because you think, you know, you want to keep it. Yeah. Um, and so, and so with, with something like Bitcoin, um, I think ultimately it's, uh, it's less about necessarily and now accepting Bitcoin never hurts because as, you know, somebody holds more and more of their net worth in Bitcoin um, or uses Bitcoin as their unit of account, Bitcoin is very easy to send to somebody to purchase something. And especially now that we have things like the Lightning Network, um, which is kind of a layer two solution on top of Bitcoin that makes it so that you can buy coffee with Bitcoin. Um, You really can do these transactions at the speed that you could do a Venmo transaction. Um, But uh, typically, Typically today, still, there is simply just hesitancy because there's also this sort of this tax issue of like, if I purchase your product with Bitcoin, I now need to tell my accountant that I bought $100 worth of X, you know, and now I owe taxes on it if I had a gain. Um, And so it's kind of easier, I think, for a lot of Bitcoiners and, and kind of what I do as well is. We have our Bitcoin position, our, our holdings that we don't intend to sell, and we we keep it in very cold storage that's very hard for anybody to access. Um, and then we we hold cash. We have we have a bank account with dollars, and we we use that for the our day to day spending. Um, and um, it's not to say that I don't purchase things with Bitcoin. I have I've paid employees in Bitcoin, um, but uh, I I. Uh, 
personally just prefer to use cash for these sort of day-to-day transactions and use Bitcoin as a means of storing my work uh, so that I can I can get more work in the future. Yeah, we didn't talk about taxes. <laughs> That's the other uh, side of this coin <laughs> is yeah, the amount of taxes you have to pay if you do have a gain. So that makes yeah. sense. Uh, fortunately, because of the, um, the way uh, Bitcoin is looked upon by the tax man here in the United States, um, it, uh, you can, um, if you hold Bitcoin for longer than a year, uh, get capital gain, long-term capital gains treatment. And so that does kind of drop your Bitcoin bill um, quite significantly. If you hold it for longer than a year, if you have a large gain, uh, you can sell it and you're paying much less in taxes, um, which is actually an interesting thing about gold is gold's tax is a completely different thing. And so even if you hold it for your tax rate, um, even if you make a dollar on it, is still like 30%. Um, and that's not something you see with Bitcoin. So that is fortunate. But but that is something, and, and one of the reasons that I typically don't trade a lot of other assets, um, you know, trade out of Bitcoin into these other currencies, um, is that every time you sell your Bitcoin for some other currency, that is a taxable event. And so, and so um, you can get into this situation where, and I've had this happen when I first started, where you basically have to pay more in taxes than you ended up earning, oh, no. uh, which can really hurt. Yeah. Oh, no, that's not good. No. Okay. Um, we'll wrap it up after this, but if somebody looking to get started in Bitcoin who's not done it before, what would you tell them? What would you say to them and why they should do it? Why they should do it. Um, and how. <laughs> yeah. I, I think the why ultimately um, is... Uh, is when you're looking at kind of, I think the forces that are that are kind of taking place today. Some of these, what what I think is, uh, I think what we're seeing is we're seeing a large roll up of power, um, really across the world. Um, and so we're seeing the centralization of power. We're seeing um, really an attempt to kind of take the individual out of the equation and kind of put you into a box with a whole bunch of other people and tell you this is how you behave now. Um, and the only asset uh, that I know of, really, um, outside of like physical dollars mm-hmm. <laughs> or or holding gold, um, is uh, that that allows you some insulation from this sort of machine right. is Bitcoin. Um, and and so some of the, the major fears that I think a lot of us have, especially as we're kind of like realizing, wow, gas is going up, all of our prices are going up. Um, is are we headed towards uh, inflation? Are we headed towards this sort of world where we're going to see five percent inflation a year, and um, and the value and you know the value of our money starts to go down? Um, how do you protect yourself from that? And uh, you know it's it's not as simple as working a nine to five job and storing it in your bank account and hoping that that money is going to be there when you're ready to spend it. Um, and so. I think ultimately, a lot of people can treat Bitcoin as a secondary savings account, and they can just say, I'm going to take $100 of my paycheck every week, and I'm going to purchase Bitcoin with it. Um, and hopefully over time, what that will do, especially if we're seeing uh, these trends continue with with, uh, with these power grabs, um, what you'll see is uh, you'll have more autonomy, you'll have the ability to be more adaptable as I think the world really, really begins to change um, over these next few decades. 
Right. And they always still say, you know, buy low, sell high. So it still applies <laughs> to Bitcoin, right? When uh, it's low, you want to buy. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we're probably in um, a really good opportunity to purchase Bitcoin right now. We saw um, earlier this year the price get up to $65,000. Um, today it's it's uh, just below 30000 um, and, and so, yeah, so you've, you've seen this large volatility to the downside. Um, and and over time, that tends to correct upwards. Yeah. You've seen this before, though, where it's dropped and yes. rise and, and up and down again. And so you've had the, you've gotten used to this volatility. Yeah. You can never quite get used to it. But um, <laughs> but you definitely you learn to, I think, be a little more stoic. Yeah. Right. You get you get through it. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of this wisdom with us. And uh, yeah, so those of you who are listening and want to learn more, Clay, how can they learn more about what it is that you do? Yeah, um, you probably find me on Twitter. Uh, My handle is Clay underscore space. Yeah, last name, space. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Very good. Um, Any last uh, thoughts that you have that we would like to share with our marketing expedition audience? Yeah. no, I, I don't know if, if you had anything that you feel like we missed. Oh, no, I think it was great. You, you gave us lots of nuggets to, to <laughs> consider and maybe you'll have to we'll have to rewind and play again so okay. you can catch all of it. I love it. <laughs> Thank you very much for coming out here to the Pepper Shock studio and and uh, taking a tour and, and sharing what you have to know about Bitcoin and all of the experiences that you have. And I might mention you're only like 20 something. 25. Yeah, 25. So you've learned a lot within a short (laughs) amount of time. So super, super awesome. And I'm really proud to know that you have done all of this and have gained all of this knowledge to be able to use to your benefit and now do venture capital and investing in other things. Well, let's just real quick share a little bit about what you're what you're doing. Yeah. um, So kind of my my investment thesis, um, and I've I've actually written an article about this I can send to you, um, is uh, is is kind of this hedging strategy. Um, it's, it was popular. It's called bar, uh, barbell investing. It's kind of popularized by this guy Nassim Taleb. Um, and and I, I it's basically it's this idea of you want to trade the two extremes and then not really have any assets in the middle. Um, and so when I look at um, when I look at the assets that I'm holding today. An extreme asset would be Bitcoin, as far as like it is a um, an international asset. It's something that you can get access to anywhere in the world, um, and uh, and so that would be on one extreme of of the uh, the barbell. And the other extreme of the barbell would be hyper local. So it would be investing in um, in the town that I live in. And so um, so my goal is to avoid investing in you know the S and P five hundred or Amazon stock or anything like that and instead diversifying into my city and into my town and, and helping hopefully grow the entrepreneurial base here in town as well. Yeah, and so what is it? It's a coffee shop, right? Uh, uh, yeah, coffee, well, yeah. So, I, so I've, invested, <laughs> I've invested in a coffee company. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and then I'm, I'm also working um, to kind of bring together the, um, and this is with a few of the, few of the other guys in town, um, to kind of bring together the uh, venture capital folks in town into sort of a more formalized structure so that we can get better access to deals. We we know kind of what's going around town and, and hopefully what it eventually um, becomes is it becomes a place where where um, entrepreneurs know that they will be able to start their business and grow their business in Boise instead of having to take it out to Seattle or Los Angeles. 
Awesome. I love it. You'll have to share more when, when you get all that put together. I think that's great. Yeah. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> well, Boise keeps making a lot of top lists for, you know, best place to live and all that kind of good stuff. So yeah. Yeah. Well, and we have uh, three of the fastest growing cities in the nation. Right. On the top 10. Yeah. Yeah. Here in, in Idaho. <laughs> yeah. Who knew? But uh, well, thank you so much for sharing. And um, yeah, we'll be sure and follow you on Twitter. And I think I do. And, and uh, for our listeners, of course, the best thing that you can always do for us is give us a review and share it with others if you enjoyed the content today. And until next time, enjoy the journey. Thanks for listening to the Marketing Expedition Podcast. Find more online at peppershock.com. Wouldn't it be great if there was one place you can go to get all the latest information and tips about marketing and advertising? The Marketing Expedition community is that place. People like you gather in our online community to build relationships with others and find the latest marketing trends, tactics, tools, and technology. We help you build your brand and your bottom line. Start your adventure today. Visit themarketingexpedition.com to find out more.